Good morning. Welcome to chapel. Uh, before I introduce our guests for this morning, I want to first hand it over to Briggs. He's from uh, the Bucks Brothers here on campus. So uh, I'll let him make an announcement. Hi, how are y'all doing? We have a uh, Brothers Under Christ Island party this Friday at 5.30 in Fountain Mall, and it benefits Mission Waco. It's a free concert featuring 10th Avenue North, Addison Road, and Matt Marr. Um, like I said, it's benefiting Mission Waco, so we'd appreciate it if you bring personal hygiene items. Uh, T-shirts are being sold in the sub and dining halls. I'm featuring one of them right now. We have Chick-fil-A, free Dr. Pepper, and inflatables, and you can check out our Facebook page. Uh, once again, this Friday at 5.30 at uh, Fountain Mall, uh, BYX Island Party. So does anybody want some free T-shirts? Who who wants who wants a gray one? So apparently they come apart. And a red one? Thank you. Well, before we begin, let me say a word of prayer. God, we thank you so much for today. God, we thank you for a university like Baylor that has great opportunities like that's coming up this Friday, God. I got a prayer right now in this chapel service that, uh, that God, you are with us and that you are opening our, our minds, opening our hearts, and opening our ears to what you might have for us. Um, God, as our guest comes, um, help us to receive what she has to offer us, God, knowing that it's coming from you and knowing that it's about of what you're doing in this world. God, we thank you so much. And I pray, amen. This morning, we had the honor of having Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil come and serve uh, and, and speak to us uh, from her life. Uh, she, is a distingu- she has distinguished herself as an outstanding leader and gifted communicator in the field of racial and ethnic reconciliation. Uh, she is a dynamic speaker whose biblically-based messages uh, raise awareness, ignite vision, and inspire action. Dr. McNeil has earned her uh, uh, BA from Rutgers University, an MDiv from Fuller Theological Seminary, and a DMIN from Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary. In 1995, in response to her growing passion for authentic race relations, Dr. McNeil founded uh, Overflow, Overflow Ministries, a nonprofit faith-based organization that's devoted to the ministry of racial, racial reconciliation. She continues this work through uh, Salter McNeil and Associates a racial and ethnic reconciliation training, consulting, and leadership organization uh, that's based out of Chicago. Uh, Dr. McNeil is also an author. Uh, She co-authored a book called The Heart of Racial Justice, How Soul Change and Leads to Social Change. That's a mouthful. Um, God, we we are so excited about what she has to offer you. I got to listen to her already at 905, and I'm excited to hear her again. I am... um, I'm hoping that you will listen attentively to what she has to offer. Let's welcome now Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. Do you know it? To worship you, oh, my soul. Joy 
Take joy, my King, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ears. Yes, we our voice and we lift our voice to worship you oh my soul rejoice take joy my king May it be, may it be a sweet, sweet sound. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Lord God, I pray that because this is all about you not about entertaining and not about just a requirement that needs to be met. This is our opportunity to be with the living God. This is our opportunity to hear what you want to say to this generation. This is our chance to get our marching orders, to hear what thus saith the Lord. And we want to hear what you're saying. More than we want to hear our own voices, we want to hear, hear what you have to say. And so, God, my prayer for me is that you would be pleased with this, my offering before you that you would be glorified through this experience that we have in the next 50 minutes and that lives would be literally transformed. We are changed by the renewing of our minds and we pray now that you would send your word to do just that. For we ask it in Jesus' name. And the people of God said, amen. Well, it's an honor to be with you this morning. It's an honor to be in chapel with you. I preached yesterday morning at Church Under the Bridge. Had an awesome, awesome time. Loved it. Marched yesterday uh, for the homeless and <clears throat> was really blessed by that entire experience and told some folk that I would be at Baylor. And so it's really a privilege to be here. I've met some awesome people, some great people on the walk yesterday. And it's a privilege to share my heart with you this morning in chapel. And so as we get ready to do that, I want to just direct your attention. You don't have to read it. I'll read it for us to the book of Esther. But after I'm gone and you want to think about this some more, just know that uh, I'm reading from Esther chapter four, and I'm going to read a few verses, and then I'm going to tell you about this verse, uh, th these chapters, and see if we can't make sense of it for our generation. I'm in Esther chapter four. I'm going to begin at verse 12, and this is what the word of the Lord says. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. But who knows? 
perhaps you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. This is the word of the Lord. And we are thankful. Amen. Oh, that was weak. Are we thankful for the word of God? Amen. All right. Now, let me just give you a little bit of black church etiquette right quick. Just right quick. I'm just going, this is parenthetical. But if you want me to have a really good time and if you want me to get better as I go, if you talk back to me, if you just say anything like, amen, that's right. Uh, I agree. You better say that. Anything close will help me out. All right. So, so if you are waiting all chapel to get your praise on, this is your chapel. Don't hold it back. Don't hold it back. So I want to preach from a subject entitled this. You ready for it? Who? Me? Everybody say it with me. Who? Me? Ah, where do leaders come from? Are leaders born or are leaders made? Now, my guess is that we would fall on opposite sides of the spectrum and maybe in between as we debate that issue back and forth. There are people who would say you can be born into leadership. You just have the skills, the innate aptitude. You seem to have the charismatic uh, personality that just seems to mark you from the time you were a young child. And people will say things like, you're just a born leader. And some of us have heard that kind of stuff, and it's inspired us as we've moved on. And we've kind of come to think, I think I am. I'm just, I've always been this way. I don't know why. I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of shaped like this. God made me like this. I have leadership in me. Just got the leadership gene, hallelujah. Other folks might say, now nah, I miss that gene. And I'm not sure I do see myself as a born leader. I, I don't know. But then people would say, don't disqualify yourself. You could be trained, developed into a leader. There are leadership development classes and books on how to grow your leadership skills so you can be nurtured into leadership. And so the question becomes, where do leaders come from? Is it nature or is it nurture? Well, my guess is that it's a combination of all those things. But in my search to answer the question, I read a book, and that book was called this, The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. Now, when you see anything that says irrefutable, that's supposed to draw you to that book because you have to want to refute that, right? And so I got this book by John Maxwell, and I read through all the chapters. And when I got to the chapter called The Law of Timing, chapter 19 stopped me. The law of timing, and this is what Maxwell argues. Maxwell says that there are all kinds of factors that go into developing a person as, into leadership, but there's this other thing, timing, that says you might not be ready for it, you might not have the skills for it, you might not think that you've been trained enough or you've been in school long enough. It's kind of like saying that there are situations, social factors, there's things going on around you in your context that demand your leadership. And whether you're ready or not, amen, whether you want to or not, whether you feel qualified or not, 
it's kind of a ready or not here I come demand put on you. And you find yourself leading even when you didn't want to. That's what happened to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He didn't want to be the leader of a civil rights movement and he definitely didn't volunteer to be a martyr. What he wanted to do was to be a pastor of a church and a person who wrote books, a person who put out philosophical thought for us to grapple with and deal with. But one night they tell me that many young pastors were gathered in a back room of some establishment trying to figure out who was gonna talk to the press that someone had to step up because they were looking for someone to articulate and to explain this burgeoning movement that was starting to gravitate more and more young people into it. More and more college students were starting to catch on fire and starting to stand up against racial discrimination. And they wanted to know what is this thing that's happening? Who can explain this to us? So in a back room over a debate, people said back and forth to each other, who should talk? And they said, finally, Martin, you should be the one who goes out and talks to the press for us. You should be the one. You're intelligent. You're articulate. You should be the one who goes out and becomes the face of this movement. And I think on some level, Dr. King probably said back to them, who? Me? I got a wife and a daughter. I got to get back to my church. I got things I got to do. I, wanna, I got plans for my life. But the timing demanded his leadership, and the rest is history. Our lives have been impacted by the decision he made that night because the time pushed him forward. It's exactly what happens to the woman in this text. Her real name is Hadassah. She's Jewish. She lives in a family that's an untraditional family. She lives in a family that, if the truth be told, some of us would think she's not ready for leadership. The first thing I want you to know about her is that she's young. And some people would say she's too young to lead. She hasn't had enough experience. And so one thing that she might have said about herself is, I'm just a teenager. I can't lead. So she's a young thing. She's a pretty girl. She's a pretty girl, and my guess is that there's some young brother in her neighborhood who has noticed that she's pretty too. What you think? That's my guess. That's just my guess. I think somebody noticed her, and my guess is that she noticed him noticing her. And she has been through enough stuff that she probably wants just somebody who will love her, who will commit to her, who will marry her. She probably has the same dreams as a whole lot of people sitting in chapel this morning. <laughs> she was going for her MRS. I tell you, she was trying to... And she needed it and wanted it because sometimes some of us have come through some hard stuff in life and it's just nice to be normal. You just want a normal life, a normal family, a normal marriage. You just want to have a normal life. And I think that's what Hadassah wanted. You see, her mother and father got killed or died. Something happened. We don't know what the Bible doesn't say. All we know is that they're both dead and she's being raised in a single-parent family now. Her uncle took her in. And I'm not here to judge any of us, but the truth be told, many of us have had some drama in our lives. Some of us have gone through some hard things, and we don't talk about it, and many people haven't heard the whole story, but there's been some stuff that's happened in our lives that we think would disqualify us from leadership, that would make us think God can't use us. Hadassah would have been that kind of candidate. 
she would have been a person that people would have said she don't come from the right kind of family and she doesn't have a mom and a dad in the home and where's her aunts in them how come she got an uncle raising her wasn't there any aunties I don't know and that's important that we don't know because sometimes as Christians, I think we want to know why we got in situations that we're in somehow to justify people's place in life. Sometimes folks are homeless. Sometimes folks have gone through a divorce. Sometimes folks have AIDS and we don't know how they got it. And it doesn't disqualify them from being used by God. I feel like preaching all of a sudden. And so Hadassah is going on about her normal life doing her normal thing she's pretty she's intelligent later we're going to learn that she's got some skills in her life that have been very importantly cultivated over time she honors her father and she loves God everybody say loves God I wanted to make a point because somehow or other in our culture we've been told that somehow you wait until you're older to love God and be really radical for God and that somehow when you're younger you still are like a little crazy and you don't really have to love God you can kind of like God but you don't have to really be radical and passionate about God and I want to say that's a lie I need a radical generation the reason I travel the country is because I believe that generation is you I believe that there's things going on in the world around you that's demanding people who love God, not like God, not buds with God. I mean love God. I feel like preaching. And I'm here to tell you, and not just because you got, you know, sometimes you think, well, I'm really pretty, and so I have to kind of like God because it's not really cool to love God and be this beautiful. Oh, come on here. Hadassah is absolutely gorgeous, and she loves God, so you can be the head of the football team, the basketball team, or both of them, and you can still love God. She loves God, but she is politically and socially uninvolved. She doesn't know anything about what's going on in the social systems of her day. She stays in her little neighborhood. She does her little thing. She doesn't engage in the politics and the social justice issues that are happening all around her because that's happening in a place called Sousa, and she doesn't go over there. That was the Washington, D.C. of her day where legislative decisions were being made and judicial laws and policies were being passed, and she didn't know anything about it. In fact, there was a party happening in Sousa where all the dignitaries and high mucky muck leadership type folks were invited to the party. But of course, Hadassah's too young to go to something like that. She doesn't even know what's going on. But over here in Susa, there's a party happening that's off the hook. Do you hear me? I'm talking a party party. Weeks on end party. No expenses spared party. Everything you could ever hope to see or eat party. Anything you wanted to drink was served to you. This was a party unlike any other party. And it was sponsored by the king, Xerxes himself. Everybody oohed and awed about the splendor of the king. He brought out so much opulence and so much wealth, so much stuff that people had never seen before, experienced before. It was outstanding. It was mind-defying. And people oohed and awed constantly as they watched and received the splendor of their king. But after weeks of drinking and eating too much, uh, something happened to the brothers because all the men were in one party and his wife Vashti the queen was having a party with women on the other side but when you drink and eat in excess 
uh, you get drunk and your mind gets dull. And so they were inebriated, yay, drunk, and, 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 and they had gone too far and they got stupid. That's what happens when we get high. I'm just, just here to say, <laughs> when we go to the extreme and we say this is supposed to be fun and then you see somebody all drunk and, 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 and wasted and you look like, that's fun, huh? That's really, really fun. It, it really is stupid. And, and it really causes us, more importantly than what it looks like, our thinking is so altered that we make really bad decisions. And that's what's going to happen to the king this day. The king has gotten himself so dulled in his thinking and his leadership is going to be impacted by it. He's got political advisors who speak into his ear. And these political advisors are not really great ones because they give him poor political advice. And so in order to keep wowing people because they've seen everything they can see now, he decides to impress them by bringing out his wife, the queen, Vashti. No one has ever seen her. And so not publicly, not up close and personal, they're not supposed to. But they decide, you know what would really wow them? I'm telling you, I mean, they've seen everything else. But boy, if you brought out your wife, the queen, and they got a chance to see her, oh, man, dude, this would be. So he says, yeah, that's a good idea, dumb. <laughs> see, I'm telling you, don't drink in excess. It'll kill you. You'll make dumb decisions. So he decides to go send for his wife, the queen, and they get over to her party, the uh, the, the, the attendant who's been told to go over and summons her, goes over to the queen, and my guess is that he has to choke it up. <clears throat> well, the king said, like, um, would you, uh, the king wants you to come over to his party. And I think Vashti said, who? Me? He wants me to do what? Oh, oh no, uh-uh, uh-uh, oh, no, I refuse. He wants me to come to a party where all his dr guests, this drunken man, get to look at me and gawk at me. Oh, I don't think so. Au contraire. You must not know about me. See, <laughs> that's what I think she was really saying. She was really trying to help Beyonce. <laughs> this ain't, I'm not going. Now, I don't, I'm not going. I am not a concubine. I am not just some little hoochie mama. I'm not going to the party. People don't look at me because they're not supposed to look at me. People lower their gaze when I come into a room because I command and demand respect. I know he's my husband and I know he loves me, but please let him know that I respectfully decline. Well, the attendant gets back to the party, and remember, this is supposed to be the thing that makes the king kind of ooh and odd at once again. Instead of being ooh and odd, everybody's beginning to murmur throughout the party, and folks are starting to say somewhere in the balcony, yo, man, they, she won't come. He now has egg on his face. Nobody sees him as the big man because they're starting to say he can't control his wife. And if other women start feeling like they could have self-esteem and respect like Vashti, we might get a movement started in here of self-esteem and respect. And I don't think that's such a bad idea, sister women here uh, with me today. I, I could think that a Vashti movement could be in order in 2010. It might not be bad for us to get little placards and go, Vashti, 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 Vashti. I love the 
other woman. I think she gives us something to stand up for. She makes me want to have my back up straight because what Vashti was basically saying was that you can be in relationship with somebody, you can love somebody, they can love you, but they might not know how to value you. They might not know how to respect you. And so you have got to know your self-worth for yourself. And when somebody asks you to do something, go somewhere, try something that uh, uh, compromises your own sense of your own personal sense of worth and ethic and your own self-esteem, something has got to rise up in you like Vashti and say, who? Me? Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Some, something's got to say, oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, you must not know about me. To the left. Because there are worse things that can happen than being broken up with. There's worse things that can happen than losing the crown. There's worse things that can happen than getting put out. And that's exactly what's going to happen to Vashti. But she shows us how to leave queenly. Put your tiara on your head when he says, if you don't do it, then it's over. Honey, put your tiara on your head. Give that brother the royal wave and leave as queenly as you can. Amen, amen, amen. Because some things just ain't for sale. Amen. You can't buy my self-respect. You can't compromise my dignity. I know who I am. And so Vashti gets put out. All the people have left the party. The king is left by himself with those same poor political advisors who keep giving him poor political advice. Watch out who your best friends are. Watch out who whispers in your ear and tell you what you ought to do. Because right now what they should say is, if you hurry up, you might be able to apologize to your wife. But no, that's not what they say. They say, yo, man, you know how you can fix this situation? Have a beauty contest. That's going to do it. Send out soldiers throughout all of your 127 provinces and gather up all the most beautiful women throughout every place in your domain and bring them back here, and you get to pick the fairest of them all. Now, I told you Hadassah is beautiful. The girl is gorgeous. And I also told you that she's not paying attention to the political, social issues of her day. But we can be ignorant of what's happening around us, but that doesn't keep them from impacting our lives. And so over here in her neighborhood, in her community, where she's minding her own business, doing her own thing, Susa intersects with her. Soldiers find themselves in her neighborhood, and they round her up with all the other young beautiful women who are going to be taken back to Susa. And in a last-ditch effort to save his daughter's life, Mordecai whispers to her, this is his last chance. This is what you say before you send your kids off to college. This is what you say before you can't influence them anymore. This is your last chance, the, the best thing you can offer them, the last piece of advice you need them to hear. You say to her, don't tell anybody that you're a Jew. change your name don't reveal your ethnic identity don't call yourself Hadassah anymore call yourself Esther talk like them fit in assimilate to their culture now why out of all the things that a dad could say to a daughter before she leaves home why assimilate to the dominant culture 
Well, we can act like we don't know, but we do, don't we? We know that we live in a world just like Hadassah lived in, where people can be judged, as Dr. King said, not by the content of their character, but by the color of their or their last name or the fact that they came from the Middle East. And so you try your best to act like everybody else. I said in the first service, and I'll say now, I met a young lady yesterday when I was preaching, and she came up to me, and she shook my hand, and she's from Korea, and she wa- I asked her what her name was, and she began to tell me her name, and then she said, but you can call me, and I think she was going to say something like Susie. You know why she does that? Because something in her world has told her that if you come to America, you got to act like them. They're not going to learn to say your name properly, so you better change it to something easy for Americans, because that's what it takes to win. That's what it's going to take for you to get an education at Baylor. And so Adessa does it. She changes her name to Esther. And she's bilingual. She can pull this thing off. So let me just take another parenthetical pause and say, it is a worthwhile thing living in the multicultural, multinational world in which we live to learn to be like Esther and to be educated well enough that you can be in other cultures and succeed. Amen. It would not be a bad thing for us to learn to speak another language. Gloria a Dios. It might be helpful to you someday that you are able to go from one language to another language. So as for me, yo aprendiendo a hablar español es muy importante para mí aleluya es importante para ti también it's also important for you because that language is growing and we can keep saying you ought to learn our language all we want to and everybody should have a language that helps us to do commerce together but when I travel around the world I meet people who can speak four and five languages not just one or two but dominant culture thinking says they got to be like us. We don't have to be like them. And Esther said, I'll learn how to be like them. And does it work? Yeah, it works. She wins. She wins the beauty contest. She is now the queen. She has character and poise that's queenly and dignified. She has a sense of self-esteem and poise and the favor of God is all over her. She's not just a pretty face because he rounded up a lot of pretty faces. She had some depth of character to her. The favor of God was on her. She acted in a way that made her stand out of other pretty faces and she becomes the queen. So now she's in the palace and she's kicking it. She gets beauty treatments, people waiting on her hand and foot. She's got attendants and maidens. It's not what she planned, but it's not as bad as she thought. She is now in the palace, and she has power and privilege and a position. It ain't all so bad. It's a lot like college, where we get a sense now to have the power of education, the position of being in university, the privilege of having access to some of the best thinkers in the world. We read books and we're exposed through the internet and technology to education and to people and to travel. This ain't so bad. But there's a problem with getting in the palace. You can become a bit isolated and ignorant to what's happening outside the palace. And that's exactly what happened to Esther. She was doing her thing and going about her daily activity until one day she was walking past the palace window and she saw her uncle Mordecai. He was a mess of a man. 
He had sackcloth on him. His clothes were all worn and tattered. He looked like he was homeless and hadn't bathed for weeks. He was just reeking. It was, he was yelling. It was a spectacle. She couldn't believe her eyes. She said to her attendants, send some clothes out to him. Tell him I said to dress himself. He's, uh, what's wrong? Now, here's where Mordecai becomes a very interesting person in this story. The same man who told her to blend in is the one man who refuses to blend in because he'll stand up. There was a man named Haman who wanted to kill all the Jews, and he wanted to kill all the Jews because of Mordecai. This is what happened. Haman would come into situations, into rooms, into places where people were gathered, Jews and Gentiles alike. And when he came in, he wanted everybody to bow in reverence to him. Only one Jew would not bow. Everybody else assimilated and did exactly what Haman wanted them to do. But Mordecai was the one person. When everybody else was bowed down, Mordecai was the one guy who stood up. And Haman hated him for it and wanted him dead. Now, usually when one person has a beef with another person, it's one-on-one, but not when race and ethnicity and culture get involved in that. Instead, now, Haman decides that all the Jews, anybody who comes from the same culture and ethnicity as Haman, they all ought to be killed. Every one of them. That's called stereotyping. That's called racial profiling, that everybody who's like you is bad. So one person does one thing, and now I generalize that to the whole group of them. And I make everybody bad. I said in the first sermon, so let me tell you this. I did that, and I think we all do it. When we think about something and all of a sudden we make everybody like that in the same category. I was in a laundromat. This happened some years ago. I was folding clothes, and two kids came into that laundromat. They were white. They wanted to get a soda out of the soda machine, and they put some money in. I saw them do it, but the soda didn't come out, and their money didn't come back out. So they did what kids would do. They looked to be about 10 years old or so. And so they started kicking the machine and shaking it and doing all that stuff, trying to make something drop out of it. Nothing came. At some point, they went to the girl behind the counter, the woman behind the counter, and they said to her, we didn't get our money, the machine is broke, or whatever they said. She came over with some sort of a key that was supposed to unlike this thing, and then she did the lever a few times, and she juggled it and did some other things, but nothing came out. And then she turned to those kids, and I watched her lay into them in a way that I've not seen an adult yell in the face of kids, I don't think ever. She just got as close to their faces as she could, and she just started screaming, why you lie? Why you lie? lie and she just lit into them and the first thought that flew through my mind was Korean people are rude and then I said to myself where did that come from my daughter has godparents one of her godparents is Gabriela Caballero Cantu And her other godparents are a married couple. One's a doctor, the other's a professor at Trinity University in Deerfield, Illinois. And they are Peter and Phyllis Cha, Koreans, who are the most godly, kind, non-rude people in my life. And I thought to myself, that's exactly how people do stuff like all Hispanics are. All 
Arabs are. You read something on the news about someone who did a crime and then all black people are. So Haman said all Jews are and decided that they should be killed for it. Mordecai said, there's some stuff you don't know that's happening in the world around you, Esther. You've become so ignorant and isolated and insulated in the nice little world you've created inside your palace that I need to tell you that you ought to get involved. I'm not going to take the clothes. I'm going to send them back. I'm going to stay out here and I'm going to keep on crying because somebody ought to cry about this. Somebody ought to say something about this. And so I'm not going to stop crying. And not only am I going to stop crying, I'm asking you to start crying. You use your influence in the palace to make a difference. Go talk to the king on behalf of your people. And I think that Esther said, who? Me? I can't go talk to the king. He hasn't called me for 30 days. Look, I really just want a beauty contest. If the truth be told, I don't really have that much political power. I can't do it. I'll get in trouble. And my guess is that you understand some of her retorts, some of her concerns. You might say, I can't get socially and politically involved. My parents didn't send me to college for that. I can't get involved. I got to study. I can't get involved. I got something else to do. I can't take on that issue. I'm too young. I'm on academic probation. I just got here myself last month. I'm a freshman. I don't know what our excuses are. But this is what Mordecai said to Esther, and I believe this is what he says to us. He said, if you keep silent at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Translation, God's show will go on with or without you. You can get involved if you want to, but one monkey won't stop the show. God will keep making the kingdom come whether you get into it or not. You can stay in school and get uninvolved, but you'll miss something, says Mordecai. Mordecai says, well, right before I say that, who knows? Maybe you were born. Maybe you came to the kingdom. Maybe you got born again for such a time as this. Maybe why you came to college was to prepare you for such a time as this. The most multicultural, multilingual, multinational time in history. No generation prior to your generation has had to deal with such global complexity ever. And maybe, just maybe, you came to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is what Mordecai is really saying. He's saying to, their, to, to uh, Esther and to us, he's saying, do you understand that this is not about your comfort? This is about discovering your destiny. Do you understand that this might help you to know why you went through what you've been through and what God plans for your life? This is not about what you feel like doing. This is about determining your course and direction and your destiny for the future. Esther says, now when you put it like that, Pray for me. Pray with me. I'm going to fast and pray because I don't want to do this in my own strength. I need God to tell me what my next step is. And then if I get in trouble, I get in trouble. If they try to make me seem like I'm too radical, I'm just going to have to seem too radical. If my boys on the team start talking about me, they're just going to have to talk about me. Whatever the problem I'll have to face, I'm going to have to face it. If I perish, I perish. I'm going to get involved. 
And so my brothers and my sisters, this is what Winston Churchill says. And I believe it is true for every single one of us. There comes a time in every person's life where you are given the unique opportunity to discover the purpose for which you were born. It is your moment of destiny. And if you seize it, if you seize it, it is your finest hour. And so in answer to the question, who, me? God would say, yes, you. College student, you. Yes, you. Young woman, you. Who, me? Yes, academic probation, you. Who, me? Yes, straight A student, you. Who, me? Faculty member, you. Who, me? Yes, just came here last week, freshman, you. Who, me? Yes, you. Senior about to graduate, you. Who, me? Yes, you. African American, you. Who, me? Yes, you. International student, you. Who, me? Yes, you. Whether you feel it was nature or nurture, the time in which we live is demanding a generation of leadership. And so in answer to the question, the next time you see social issues and social concerns of which you've not been involved, when you ask the question, who, me? Hear the Spirit of God say back to you, yes. Let's stand to our feet. I want to pray for you. Lord God, in this chapel, I see not just college students, I see a generation of leaders. And I hear you saying that you plan to mobilize a generation of leaders to the north, the south, the east, and the west. Globally, this generation will impact nations. I declare like Jeremiah, from the time they were born, you knew them and you appointed them to be prophets to the nations. Give them the courage of Esther. Change their lives and cause them to change lives because of the word of God that's being taken around the world through them. For we ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, God bless you.